It's 106 miles to Chicago. We've got a full tank of gas, half a pack of cigarettes. It's dark, and we're wearing sunglasses. Hit it! Welcome to Storytelling Breakdown. I'm Ben Clemmer. And I'm Caleb Meyer. When we talk about a film for an episode of this podcast, we usually look for ways in which the production and the final product sets itself apart. Today's entry is unique, as there's so many moving parts that are worth highlighting in a movie that starred two of the greatest comedians of a generation, which says something, considering who their contemporaries were. It also at one time held the record for most vehicles wrecked in the making of a movie, a John Landis classic from 1980. Back after their exclusive three-year tour of Europe, Scandinavia, and the subcontinent, won't you welcome from Calumet City, Illinois, the show band of Juliet Jake and Elwood Blues. The Blues Brothers! First up, spoiler alert for the movie, although, if you haven't seen Blues Brothers, stop, whatever you are doing, watch the movie, and come back. We'll still be here. I'm... Really excited to talk about this movie as we lead off our second season. Blues Brothers holds an incredibly significant place in my heart. I'm younger than both of my siblings by over a decade. So this is what caused me to get to experience a lot of movies that were older than me being shown to me by my siblings and sometimes my parents with great enthusiasm. As a result of that, Blues Brothers is the first R-rated movie that I ever saw. I mean, obviously, it's almost entirely for language. And we'll be quoting the movie throughout this show and... We'll bleep the foul language when it comes up. Or just delete the scene with the nun, which, looking at IMDb, Kathleen Freeman plays sister Mary Stigmata. That's hilarious, and I'd put that up there with the naked gun having a hospital called Our Lady of the Worthless Miracle, as far as references that are funnier if you grew up going through Catholic schools. But we'll touch on those elements more later on. I was recently talking to one of my friends, and sure enough, their first exposure to Blues Brothers was Drake and Josh, the episode where they perform Soul Man dressed as and performing the parts of the Blues Brothers. The movie is a love letter to a genre that, at least when I was growing up, I found that many of our generation really kind of dismissed. And then as I went through grade school and high school, this added fuel to the fire and was probably why I wrote a research paper about Blues Brothers my sophomore year at Bishop Dwanger. And sophomore Honors American Literature was taught by Mrs. Spohn, who is now retired, and she was probably one of the best, if not the best, English teacher uh, who I had at Bishop Dwanger, and I'm probably not the only Dwanger grad who would say that. And that paper went through a crucible. She was an insanely good editor in terms of just every single detail and process and everything that she would fine-tune. Thanks to going through her process, I learned so much more about this movie just with everything I had to dig up. 
Now, I suspect we'll be digging back through that research for some of our conversation today, Ben. Given I was able to unearth that paper yesterday, yes. Yes, we will. Now, before we got on the mics, we talked about genre. Blues Brothers is a comedy that was an offshoot of Saturday Night Live in the first half of its first decade of existence. I mean, everyone says that, like, oh, when I watched SNL, that's when the cast was at its best. I mean, I love Andy Samberg, and when Lowly Island was on it, that's when I watched it. But, I mean... Jane Curtin, Gilda Radner, Lorraine Newman, Garrett Morris, Chevy Chase, then you go to Bill Murray, and you get Belushi and Aykroyd. Come on, that's hands down the best. The mid-70s saw Canadian comedian Dan Aykroyd working in a comedy troupe called Second City and operating in a Chicago bar called the 505 Club. Now, one night in 1975, Saturday Night Live star John Belushi visited the club. Belushi was in town to recruit Second City comedians for SNL. As they chatted in the bar, blues music blaring behind them, the conversation turned to their mutual love of music. And Belushi said, you know, we should form a band. Though their tastes differed, their love of music prompted Belushi and Aykroyd to form the Blues Brothers, which in its development, from a band to a television skit to a classic film, would leave an indelible mark on popular culture. Now, this is probably the most famous SNL movie ever. The only one that comes a little close is Wayne's World, and Blues Brothers is still in its own zip code. Even if Wayne's World had a better domestic box office. You're adjusting for inflation there. And peak Mike Myers. Also, both movies are set in Illinois. Blues Brothers takes us to zip codes encompassing Chicago, parts of Joliet, and even Kokomo, Indiana. Oh, Bob's Country Bunker. (laughs) I usually sit in the car and ride it out on the glove compartment lid. So John Belushi, who incredibly only has 13 acting credits total, Blues Brothers was his third to last credit. So Belushi previously worked with Landis on the iconic comedy Animal House. Also, side note, that is the first movie that my parents ever saw in theaters together. Belushi, who was already an established star at this point, as opposed to Aykroyd, Blues Brothers is only his ninth acting credit, so it's only the ninth film he was ever in, or production he was ever in. Aykroyd also wrote the film and the original screenplay for Blues Brothers, which was over 300 pages long. Now, the movie itself clocks in at a little over two hours. If they kept everything in, it would have been closer to the length of the extended edition of Lord of the Rings Return of the King. So, it's a good thing they made some edits along the way. And Aykroyd then gives them the backstory of they had a life of crime, growing up in Calumet City, grew up in an orphanage. That's where we again see the elements of that with the Jake being released from prison at the beginning of the film and the rough lifestyle that the characters live throughout the movie. The interesting connection, they could have actually worked together on Animal House when that film was being cast. And if you think about it, the part of D-Day was definitely written with Aykroyd in mind when you consider the the motorhead aspect. The first time we see the character of D-Day, he's driving a motorcycle into the frat house. He's the one that's driving the death mobile in the final act of the film. But Aykroyd was considered to be too old to play a college student, so the part ultimately went to Bruce McGill. Then you also have another potential connection with Animal House and Ghostbusters, because another actor who was considered for Animal House was Aykroyd's friend and writing partner on Ghostbusters, Harold Ramis, who also was too old to play a college student by the time they were doing Animal House. Uh, But had he been in it, I think would have had the part of Boone. Now, the Ghostbusters parallel is an interesting one. It's kind of comedy without a moral or theme. The quote we're on a mission from God, is almost more of a tagline than an actual point or purpose of the movie. But you can make a memorable piece without obviously trying to drive a message home. And this brings us back to the conversation about genre. Blues Brothers is a comedy. It's also a comedy in the most general sense, given it's also a musical. And it does meet the qualifications for that. And I would also say, just personally, it's probably then my favorite musical. The qualification it meets, 
two types of performances, spontaneous bursts into song and then performances in front of an actual live audience. And there's even one scene that serves as a very transformative moment for the characters, only Jake and Elwood aren't the ones who've seen it. That goes to James Brown, more on him later. Though with that, let's talk about some of the players involved. On the musical front of things, uh, one of the things that I dug into heavily uh, when I wrote my paper in high school was the formation of the band. Aykroyd and Belushi, because they both fancy themselves as connoisseurs of music, were kind of already building up their credibility there. Because you have Aykroyd who's teaching himself to play the harmonica, which he does actively as Elwood Blues. And then you have John Belushi, who is already iconic, uh, especially one uh, skit that sticks out, is when he's performing as a parody of Joe Cocker standing next to Joe Cocker and they're both performing together. And Joe Cocker, for those who aren't familiar, would sing and perform and always had kind of interesting movements with his arms kind of as he's dancing along or moving along to the music, kind of swaying a bit, and then kind of elaborate facial expressions as he's just got this amazing, soulful sound to his voice. Then you have Belushi cranking those tendencies up to 11 and just making it so hilarious, but also looking pretty much exactly like Joe Cocker did when he performed at Woodstock. So they come in with those backgrounds. They go through and develop their stage personas. Initially, I think they performed uh, the blues song, I'm a King Bee, and were dressed in bee costumes when they first did it, and then eventually settled on the look with the sunglasses, the hats, and the suits that we know them for. The first time they played on SNL, they actually played with Willie Nelson's backup band, and from there, they started working with Paul Schaefer, who was in the SNL band, to start finding their own musicians and put together their own group. To do that, they had to figure out what they wanted their sound to be like. And there's stories about Belushi uh, going through his record collection. And it made me think of Shaun of the Dead in terms of anytime you found something that just didn't fit. And a lot of that was like old school what we think of classic 12-bar blues or delta blues that just really wasn't the vibe they were going for. And if Belushi played it and it just wasn't fitting, he'd smash the record and move on to the next one. And eventually they did settle on the sound they were shooting for, which, given some of Aykroyd's connections, Chicago blues. A lot of horns, bigger sound, a little bit more movement, and not just that standard 12-bar style. And they start building up the band from there. Just the names of everyone in the band is so good. Tom Bones Malone, what a great name. He was one of the starting points because he had that SNL connection, and he and uh, Lou Marini, or Blue Lou, were both in uh, Blood, Sweat, and Tears. And so they get brought in early uh, to fill out the horn section, and then the third horn player actually probably, I think he might get more screen time and dialogue than anyone else in the band uh, because it's Alan Rubin, Mr. Fabulous, who winds up being the... Mater D at the the Shea Paul when they have to go get him at the restaurant and they have that whole that whole bit that's just amazing. Sell me your children. I want to buy your women. <laughs> <laughs> the personality that he's able to pull off, he went to Juilliard. He trained there as a master trumpet player and fills out the horn section of the band. Although I think there may have actually been a fourth member of their brass section because if you listen to some of the music, there's four horn parts, but that was studio rather than an actor or a musician playing a part in the film. As far as the rest of the group goes, I think it was Tom Bones Malone who suggested that they reach out to Steve Cropper and Donald Duck Dunn for the rhythm section to play uh, guitar and bass. Cropper and Dunn were both legends, thanks to Stacked Records and playing with Booker T and the MGs, which, side story there, I have actually seen Booker T. He opened for the Black Keys about 10 years ago in uh, Indianapolis. Uh, my family uh, saw him and just 
kind of blew our minds that, oh, we were coming here to see the Black Keys and then out of nowhere, it's one of the most iconic rock and R&B musicians. Getting to see Booker T in that context just absolutely blew our minds. Booker T and the Black Keys instead of Booker T and the MGs. But you have Dunn and Cropper both coming out of Booker T and the MGs, both coming out of that Stax Records era. One story that I remember about Cropper, uh, he actually met and played with Jimi Hendrix and Hendrix had come to play with him in the studio and was waiting around all day and Cropper never came out. And then at the end of the day, he was told by secretary or whoever was at the front desk in the studio that day and just said, hey, uh, I think Jimi Hendrix was here and was looking to jam with you. And uh, it was here from like dawn until he decided to leave and go across the street to a bar and Cropper went and met him and then they jammed out all night. And Donald Duck Dunn, oh my word, (laughs) every line that he gets in the movie, and there's not a bunch of them, but just from the fro to the pipe to playing a Fender Precision bass, there's just so much about his shtick that I love. We had a band powerful enough to turn goat on the gasoline, and you can barely understand it with his accent. (laughs) Or as they're getting back into the car after uh, Willie Too Big Hall, their drummer, uh, says think we should give the blues brothers just one more chance why not if the fits wear it so much personality in their rhythm section the influence they get from Stax records in memphis and the booker t and the mgs element they actually wind up playing some of their songs uh, on albums that they did uh, including green onions and there's a version of that where dan Aykroyd has this great monologue as elwood blues and going from talking about everything from just the international appeal of music and how great American music is because he says now you go to Germany you've got your Bach your Beethoven and your Brahms here in America you've got your Fred McDowell your Irving Berlin your Glenn Miller and your Booker T and the MGs I'm just talking about the music people what it does to me and that is as you look around the world you go to the Soviet Union or Great Britain or France again think about the era here you name it any country everybody's doing flips and twists just to get into a genuine pair of American blue jeans and to hear this music and we got all here in America the land of the Chrysler 440 cubic inch engine <laughs> and that might be the most Elwood Blues sentence I've ever heard <laughs> part of why I think like the band is so good and it's part of why the movie's so good everyone around the world can relate to it because like they get those elements from all over the country they get that horn section from Chicago they get that Juilliard influence they get that Memphis rhythm but they also bring Mad Guitar Murphy up from Texas and he was even playing with Johnny Winter uh, when they brought him in uh, which is about as Texas electric guitars you can get the funny thing with with his story there is Belushi was the only one who wasn't satisfied with the rhythm section he was like no we should get another guitar in here to to complement Steve Cropper kind of get a rhythm and lead thing going and then Mad Guitar Murphy has one of the the most memorable recruiting moments because they uh, have to go borrow him from his wife played by the wonderful and amazing Aretha Franklin and we'll continue on with the guest stars again once we've gotten through the entire band the complication they ran into was Paul Schaefer could not get out of his SNL contract and Belushi was able to make it work to be able to do the film uh, but Paul Schaefer uh, was not going to be able to get out of his contract so Murphy Dunn comes in and he brought along the drummer Willie Too Big Hall And at that point, you have the entire group. To your point, though, Caleb, you're absolutely right. Because anytime you have those weird fusions of region kind of cross-pollination, a lot of people would point to something like, actually, it's my friend uh, Mitch Frazier, uh, who I used to work with in the retail store at Sweetwaters, with the biggest Chuck Berry fan I know. And he talks about how Chuck Berry grew up where he could hear musical influences being played on the radio from the West, East, Midwest, and South. 
And at that point, you get an African-American musician who's also into country, and he winds up creating rock and roll. When we talk about the guest stars in Blues Brothers, the crazy thing is that so many of these people that we look back on who had such iconic careers, and it's a little bittersweet because at this point they're all gone, they were all looking for work. Late 1970s, early 1980s, they were happy to come in and do the movie. And that's everybody from uh, the first one you see, Cab Calloway, uh, playing the mentor Curtis, and he's introduced first, but performs last, and you can see why. That version of Minnie the Moocher is just absolutely insane. His is the only performance in the movie where it's almost like a dream sequence, and it's exactly reminiscent of the original Minnie the Moocher performance that they did with the suit and the tuxes and the, like skyline background behind them all and that was such uh, was such a good touch for such an incredible performer and then as soon as he turns and cuts back he's suddenly in the black suit again and delivering the line that we delivered at the front of the episode as he introduces the group yeah cap calloway's performance is something else i do want to jump around a little bit because when we were talking about john lee hooker one of the references i made to him was his age he was born in 1917 and at that point he's only six years younger than robert johnson who is credited with the mythic going down to the crossroads selling his soul to the devil and creating the genre of the blues as we know it when he performs outside of Ray's music exchange boom 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 it's just such an incredible old school performance and Cap Calloway is even older than John Lee Hooker is so just so many connections that go back to the earliest days of the blues genre there's so many good references to just music lore in the movie as well because right after they perform that song this might be only in the extended edition, but there's a little back and forth between two guys saying, oh, I wrote that song. No, I wrote that song. And it's it's just a nice reference to everyone back in the day saying, oh, yeah, I invented blues or no, that was my song. I came up with that. And, and the parallels like that whole we're going to touch on this, too, that whole fact that the city of Chicago and just so many of the spaces that they're in feel like characters and Ray's music exchange and having a bit where a blind man fires a gun to prevent someone from stealing a guitar from his shop. But then also, I don't think there's anything wrong with the action on this piano. And then it's just vintage Ray Charles Mm -hmm. just launching into shake your tail feather. And you get some wonderful contrast just from the production side, because for the performance of shake your tail feather and all of the dancers they had out in the streets were amateurs and if I'm recalling, again, some of the making of content uh, and from John Landis and others, trying to coordinate that was a nightmare. And then you compare that to the sequence in the church early in the movie with James Brown, where they brought in professionals and, oh, boy, can you tell. You get wise, you get to church. And going down to check out Reverend Cleophas, played by James Brown. And that whole scene, because, again, I saw Blues Brothers very early in life was what I wanted church to be when I was growing up and going through Catholic school. It's like, why isn't our music as good as this? And this is also a moment we alluded to earlier with the fact that the band moment and everything that happens in this scene is the part of the musical where a character experiences a change throughout the course of a song. They're just not the ones singing it. I mean, you get the little moments in there like God bless the United States of America and the different things that Jake and L would say, but it's still James Brown's performance. Now, before I I touch on our next performer here, have either of you guys heard the Wheel of Fortune story? I have not. So this actually comes from Weird Al Yankovic. He was asked to be on a celebrity Wheel of Fortune show in the early to mid-90s and initially didn't want to do it until his agent told him, James Brown and Little Richard are also going to be on it, at which point Al was just, yes, I'll do it. 
And so they go in, and I, th- I think Al told this story on like Seth Meyers uh, within these last couple of years. They go in early to do a rehearsal, learn how the game works and the whole process. And Al's there, little Richard is there, they're going through the process. But James Brown showed up an hour late. And so the rest of them are in the green room, and they're watching as James Brown is trying to learn the game of Wheel of Fortune. He's just come in with like his 20-person entourage that travel with him everywhere, apparently. And it becomes clear very quickly that James Brown has never seen Wheel of Fortune. And as it keeps going, perhaps has even never played the game of Hangman before, because he just did not know how this worked. So spins the wheel, takes a little while. It's like, okay, we have a half hour, James. Give me an A. Uh, it, actually, uh, if you're going to guess a letter, it has to be uh, has to be a consonant. And he's like, oh, uh, Europe. Hearing that perspective on James Brown from Weird Al Yankovic is just the type of thing I geek out over and all that stuff's on YouTube. And Weird Al's final puzzle is just hilarious. So we've touched on four of the guest stars. Uh, the fifth, of course, is Aretha Franklin, who comes in playing <laughs> the wife of Matt Guitar Murphy. Uh, and her performance of Think is just absolutely stellar again all of these iconic performers bringing their a game showing just in so many ways how this movie kind of captures lightning in a bottle well to your point earlier because i also saw this as a young child and i may have heard the names of some of these performers before but i'd never seen their faces before so seeing this movie was the first time i could actually put a face to the name and it's such a good legacy for all of them which is so funny considering they were all looking for work and like they were kind of at the end of their careers but this is such a good memorial and testament that's gonna last forever oh absolutely and i say this uh as an npr nerd uh because after aretha franklin passed away the tribute that fresh air uh did for her was amazing because i think uh terry gross interviewed her like back in the 90s and the example that's actually coming to mind for me right now is uh george bush and barbara bush you see it sometimes where when one partner passes the spouse uh passes away not long after them and even though in blues brothers matt murphy and aretha franklin play husband and wife and really i don't know if they really had anything to do with each other other than both being in this film in those parts they passed away two months apart from each other uh matt murphy uh died on june 15th 2018 and aretha franklin passed uh, just a little over two months later on august 16th just incredible connections and and ultimately kind of because it, this is where we always find different ways to think of uh, Jane Martin. I know she would appreciate the fact that this is a movie where the actions taken have consequences and the things that Aretha Franklin is warning Matt Guitar Murphy about. You better think about the consequences of your actions come to pass <laughs> as the movie plays out. Now, aside from those brilliant musical guest stars, there's a massive cast of cameos and famous actors and just amazing people to which our producer has a story about one of them. Here's Steven Stahovsky. So, incidentally, Frank Oz, as you both know, shows up in the movie, and I actually got a chance to meet Frank Oz when I was, like, 14. He ran down to St. Martin, which is in the Caribbean, St. Martin Island, to visit the Yoda guy, the special effects producer who developed Yoda, who Frank Oz voiced, has his own shop on St. Martin. And it just happened to be the day that my family was on a vacation was in St. Martin, so my dad and I fought through the crowds and I got to the front of the front of the line where they were all doing autographs and I said oh my gosh I'm such a big fan and the response was essentially yeah everybody here is and if you want an autograph you need to go get something from the shop to to have autographed and get back in line which was two hours long (laughs) it was lots of fun it was very cool guy oh my word and and that they have Frank Oz in there again just like a bit part in the prison as Jake Blues is getting processed out 
And Frank Oz is, of course, not the only Star Wars connection, uh, given Carrie Fisher also is in the film as the mystery woman actively trying to kill them uh, throughout the movie. And uh, I saw one bit that just talked about some of the, the goofs in the film when she literally blows up Elwood's apartment building. And as they're climbing out, you see like bricks coming off of one of their hats. And it's like, that's either a very strong hat or very light bricks. But anyway, her performance, again, bit part, does an amazing job right there with her. You got to talk about John Candy. Just a few lines here or there. Car 55. We're in a truck. (laughs) Little moments that he just takes and runs. Orange whip. Orange whip. Three orange whips. (laughs) And there's so many other good ones. I mean, Paul Rubens, Henry Gibson, Charles Napier, Twiggy. And what's crazy about this is I've seen this movie, I don't know, maybe a dozen times, maybe more. I just, in the last two months, learned that Steven Spielberg was in it. And then, Ben, you told me that. I know you're an Eagles fan. The band, not the team. And Joe Walsh is in the film. Which absolutely blew my mind being a huge Eagles fan and never knowing that he was in it. Where does he even show up? He's one of the prisoners uh, when they're doing Jailhouse Rock at the end of the film, banging a cup on the table. I think John Landis is in there too, as well as a a cameo as one of the cops uh, during the mall scene, which now gives us an opportunity to talk about just some of the ridiculous behind the scenes content from this film. Another legacy to this as a film is it's part of the reason why it's possible to film in Chicago again. Because for a while there... Was that due to state laws or the governor or something? They didn't really like having films there. Well, it wasn't a state thing. It was local. And it was one old TV show. I can't even remember what the show was, but it showed a Chicago cop taking a bribe. And that was the end of it. And it was like, nope, you cannot film in Chicago uh, anymore. And the film that opened that back up was Blues Brothers because they were able to work it out with the mayor at the time, with uh, Mayor Byrne, not only allowed them to film in the Chicago area, but she also allowed them to cut off traffic on city streets drive on them at high speeds exceeding 100 miles an hour and even gave them permission to crash the blues mobile through one of the windows of the daily center everything that goes into that final act is just absolutely insane because when all was said and done you had the national guard chicago police department swat teams chicago sheriffs and fire departments all present in downtown chicago for the film's finale which is part of why again like everyone like the the absolute insanity of everything going on in that final act is the type of thing you would do with CGI today. But those people are all physically there going after the Blues Brothers, chasing them into the building as they go to see the Cook County Accessor played by By Steven Spielberg. Spielberg. But, I mean, without them reopening Chicago to the movie industry, you don't get the vacation movies, you don't get Home Alone, or if you do, they're in a totally different setting. And this movie did such a good job of establishing Chicago as a character and as an identity that... It's such a big part of that 80s movie culture. You know, I kind of like that Wrigley Field bit or just and then the Nazis actually showing up at Wrigley Field or pulling down through evading the cops and Elwood just going, this is definitely lower Wacker Drive, <laughs> which also I believe at least one of the underground sections in Chicago is then also obviously used in the Dark Knight with the whole sequence with the SWAT team and the, the truck that the Joker and his men are on. But that's episode one. Behind the scenes on this film, and this is where, again, this was, I think, uh, the 11th of Belushi's 13 career credits. Substance abuse was definitely an issue. Uh, Landis pointed out uh, in an interview that when they worked together in Animal House, Belushi was probably at 100%. But by the time they were doing Blues Brothers, he was more like 75. Uh, There were definitely some clashes there. It was like flushing away a stash. Belushi was actively using cocaine at that point, and then that was contributing to alcohol abuse, which was then fueling the cocaine use, and it was just a, 
a terrible cycle. And it probably also wasn't helped because you hear this a lot in the 80s. And I think there's definitely rules in place that exist now because of some of this crazy stuff that actors were doing and why you often hear that, oh, this actor or actress wasn't able to do a project because of scheduling conflicts. They don't let you try to do too many things at once. And you had something like Belushi going back and forth between SNL and New York going to Chicago to film Blues Brothers and just back and forth, back and forth in the rigors of that schedule. And you had a similar situation with uh, Michael J. Fox trying to do Family Ties and Back to the Future, which definitely contributed to some of his health issues. Or even uh, I think Bruce Willis went through some of that with Moonlighting and the first Die Hard film. And just that insane schedule that Belushi was trying to manage. And then you have cast and crew trying to manage Belushi. So there was one night where they just flat out lost track of Belushi, though. And it wasn't because he was high. It was because he was hungry. And he didn't like what was there to eat or drink on set. At least that's what Aykroyd says. He said he couldn't find him anywhere. So finally, he saw this path going through a parking lot and into a nearby neighborhood. So he followed it. And the neighborhood was all dark, except for one house. And he knocked on the door and said, Excuse me, we're shooting a movie and missing one of our actors. And the guy goes, Oh yeah, Belushi? He came in about an hour ago, raided my fridge, and he crashed on the couch. And picture Dan Aykroyd having to do that in Elwood Blue's costume. So at that point, he looks like a government agent going to the door and asking, Have you seen John Belushi? One of my favorite parts of the movie is the mall scene, and I had the pleasure of watching the movie for the first time with my brother-in-law when I rewatched it for this episode, and that's the first part of the movie where you really get an idea of what you're getting yourself into. You went out of this parking lot? Okay. And then we made the connection earlier, because then it, we cut to a clerk and a customer, and he's asking her if they have a Miss Piggy, and the actor who plays Miss Piggy is in the film, the previously mentioned Frank Oz. The production crew was able to find a location and some of the filming in shopping mall stories, whether it's from Blues Brothers or just a couple years earlier from Dawn of the Dead, are absolutely ridiculous. Blues Brothers, obviously, it's less of the film, but it's a car chase. And it was uh, the Dixie Mall in Illinois, already abandoned, so they had to make it look like it was fully functional. So you had franchises and businesses that were called in to decorate dormant storefronts. And basically, they had three types. They had stores that were in the mall that they couldn't wreck with a car. They had those that they could actually drive through and destroy, and then others were just there to serve as places where the crew was operating throughout the course of the film. But they had to hire a security firm to guard some of the merchandise in some of the stores because things were inevitably being potentially stolen throughout the course of filming. Landis discovered later that some of the guards that they hired through the firm were actually also stealing some of the merchandise, and Landis, uh, to this day, has never named the security firm that they hired on the movie to be a part of that whole scenario. But you get the great product placement lines as they're driving through the mall. Pier 1 Imports. <laughs> Looks like the Oldsmobiles are in early this year. It's just the wonderful product placement moments as they're crashing through the mall. Now, we've referenced a couple times how, like, Chicago itself is its own character in the movie, but there's one big character we haven't talked about yet, and that's the car itself. Because the Bluesmobile is iconic, and it goes through so many changes between, you know, that chase through them all, they steal the loudspeaker from the beach and strap it on top so they can advertise for their show, and then the great chase at the end, and then finally getting to the Daily Plaza and it just falling into pieces. And apparently, see, I didn't know this, but there's a deleted scene that shows how it got its superpowers. And I'm so, so glad they chose to leave that out because having it just be this miraculous car that can almost seemingly do anything is, is so perfect for the movie. There doesn't need to be a weird sci-fi reason for the car to have superpowers. It, it can just 
be able to do this by ultimately, as some of the other actions in the movie suggest, by divine intervention. The Bluesmobile has superpowers. And so many of the messages of Blues Brothers, whether it is doing what you can to improve the lives of the poor and the orphaned, whether it's taking it to the Nazis. I hate Illinois Nazis. And just the the catholicity of Blues Brothers is something I've always appreciated uh, and especially did so as I was growing up. They're far from perfect, whether it's illegal driving, blackmail, theft, destruction of property. But going back to 2010, the movie was actually praised by the Vatican, which again, one uh, detail that I was uh, happy to pluck from my research paper. In so many ways, the movie is an inspiring capturing of a moment. And we, I guess we can say that about a lot of films and TV shows, but just the fact that I think it is maybe the last best thing that John Belushi ever did. And it also signaled at the other end of the spectrum everything that is to come in Dan Aykroyd's career and so many great comedies and projects that he's been attached to and all out of that first season of SNL. And it's got perfect bookends from starting and ending in jail after finishing what they set out to do from She Caught the Katie to Jailhouse Rock. Everybody in the whole cell block was dancing to the jailhouse rock. During our last episode, we introduced you to our friend and fellow creative, Lucas Gerke, when we tracked him for the spotlight on the movie phone booth. There's got to be at least $7 worth of change here. Iconic. Lucas also recorded a spotlight that has some similarities to Blues Brothers, given the sunglasses-wearing protagonist, who can absolutely make tires squeal. We're going to hear about another iconic film intro, and this time it's Edgar Wright's 2017 masterpiece, Baby Driver. As the viewer... Your brain does that thing where it tries to make sense of the sound because it's the very first second of the movie and you don't realize that the main character has really bad tinnitus. So you're piecing it together. Oh, it's the car squealing up. Oh, we know it's a musically based film. The music's starting. Maybe it's like the squeal of an amp. What is this sound? And I think it, it since he's the main character, Baby, and he's the focus and he has this really bad tinnitus, you're starting in immediately in his shoes as soon as the movie starts. You get that first hit from Bell Bottoms by the John Spencer Blues Explosion, and it, it just it throws you right in. Every single beat shows you a new character in the car. You see John Bernthal's Griff, who, as amazing as that actor is, he's only in the first ten minutes of the movie. And you know what? He's not wasted at all because he's amazing. Next hit, you see Buddy, same deal. Next hit, you see Darling, and right as you see her, everybody else looks so serious and stern, and she smiles almost at the camera, and then the music picks up, and they all exit the vehicle. And obviously, anyone who knows anything about this movie, the music is the thing. It's basically a two-hour music video with a plot. It, it never stops. It just immediately gets you into that. They open up the trunk, get all the guns, pull up their masks, and they go into the bank. As soon as they do, you know, music's picking up, music's picking up, and as soon as they get in the bank and start the actual robbery, music stops. But 
That's the natural beat of the song. Again, the scene was written to fit the song, not the other way around. If I recall what I've looked into behind the scenes when it comes to Baby Driver, this wasn't just editing to music. Those songs were selected going back to when the script was written, if not before. Edgar Wright chose which songs he wanted. There's also a funny story about him calling James Gunn to ask if he was using Hocus Pocus by Focus because that was the main thing he wanted in there. Effectively, he picked the songs he wanted and then listened to the song, made the story beats in the script, in the storyboard, in all of the rehearsals to fit it, and, depending on the scene, had massive speakers on set playing the music. He had earbuds in almost every actor's ears for when they could hide them to have them hearing the song as they moved. So not only did he give them a count structure and be like, okay, do this on this count, do this on this count. They heard the song. So... In a very rare case, it's the actors moving with the action in the way it's going to play out in the movie. They didn't have to imagine the music. It was there. They could hear it. And so once they go into that bank, the robbery starts. The music dies for a second and you see Baby kind of looking in. And you can tell he's got reservations. He doesn't like the violence and stuff. But then he immediately breaks away from it for when the, the vocals come in saying, Thank you very much, ladies and gentlemen. Tonight I'd like to tell you about... <laughs> And as soon as that comes in, he's immediately, he's mouthing the words. He turns on the, the windshield wipers to, like, go in time with the music. He's beating on the steering wheel. He's using his an empty water bottle as a mic and then throws it in the back seat. Like, he's as into the music as clearly Edgar Wright was when making the movie. And as hopefully the audience is when they realize what kind of movie they just walked into. And you see him peek over his sunglasses when he sees them hit somebody with the butt of their gun. He doesn't really seem to have too many qualms with them stealing money, but he doesn't want them hurting people. I think it's worth mentioning just him peeking over the sunglasses that he's been wearing the whole time. It's the only time he doesn't... Like, it's the only time in this opening scene you see his eyes. And I think that's already telling you about the character. So this intro, we're learning about the characters involved. We're learning about the way this movie's going to play out thematically and just aesthetically. And we're getting a base establishment for the plot, which is... It's a bank robbery. He's the getaway driver. And then from there, it just sets the bar for car chases in the film so high. The second they get in from the robbery, it's amazing because uh, first thing they do, you see Griff. And he's like, all right, we're ready to go. So he points his finger forward. And first thing Baby does, he zooms the car in reverse. <laughs> he immediately goes the opposite direction that everybody in the car and probably the audience expected him to. Car chases are the norm for action films. We've seen them countless times. James Bond has its varying degrees of success when it comes to how cool their car chase scenes are. Every action film you've ever seen, um, even Kingsman has kind of one at the beginning when he's ch when the police are chasing him and he's driving backwards. And so there's all these tropes with car chases, so you have a lot to live up to and you have to do something to make it unique. And they do it in a couple ways. First of all, by having it match to the music. The uh, police sirens, as they're lining up and chasing them, the police sirens are in time with the music. When he's squealing around, so the squeal of the tires fit in within the beats of the music. But the way they filmed it is also how they made it unique. Because they did it in two ways. One was having Ansel Elgort train for six months on how to drive cars with a stunt driver. Not to say he can literally do everything that Baby does in the movie, but he can basically drive like a stunt performer. 
and a good almost half of the shots of him driving it's actually him driving they actually filmed him driving like a maniac for the other ones which were just a little too dangerous for the insurance to be okay with him driving they had a rig on top of the car with pedals that actually drove the car meaning this stunt driver was driving a car but whilst on top of it instead of in the driver's seat and all of it is practical every single second of it is practical i can't remember exactly which actor said this it may have been john ham and and anyway i'm paraphrasing but i believe they had a rig for filming attached to the side of a vehicle and you had edgar wright out there flailing around like a sunburned muppet because you have Ansel Elgort who's acting his butt off and doing a great job and also who knows how to do some of the stunt work. You then have a stunt driver on top of the car doing ridiculously unprecedented stunt work. And then you have another stunt driver in a like a minivan type vehicle off to the side with a camera rig on top of it. Camera operator up there filming exactly where he needs to without falling off. And then Edgar Wright being Edgar Wright. On top of this thing, I, he had no. He should have been in the car. Honestly, he. Almost, I would say he had no business up there. But look at the results. All of the stunt work was practical. The actors were in the car for almost all of it, and then you just see him pull off some tricks that you just don't see in other movies. Even like you know, you can dispute the realism of their of him driving a red car, running into two other red cars, pulling in front of one to make it switch lanes, and get the helicopter confused about which red car is the red car, but. You don't really see stuff like that, and it kind of tells you how this movie, even though it takes itself seriously, is kind of goofy in a way, and lighthearted. But then seeing him drift the car to the side to flip where the, the spike strip is. I've never seen that in a movie. And like, again, yeah, it's not like some insane thing, but it just shows you that the car work in this movie, for being about a guy who is a getaway driver, you could tell they really went to 11 I would argue 12, and did things that you've never seen in car chases before, and you've never really seen in movies before. And if you're going to make the movie about music and cars, you got to make both of them as best you possibly can. And having that opening scene encased in bell-bottoms, having all of the act, all the characters freaking out with his driving and him looking cool as a cucumber, and him just zooming and doing all of it, and it shows the pedals which is really cool um, because everything nowadays is automatic, but to see actually the footwork involved in driving a sports car like that, it's a better perspective than just a floating camera outside the car. And then as the song winds down and you see them pull into the parking garage and switch to another getaway car, which shows you how planned out it is. It shows you they're professionals. It's not like this is unheard of, but they do it so seamlessly that it establishes the plot, it establishes the characters, it establishes some background, it establishes the setting, and it establishes the atmosphere. All at once, so seamlessly, and they had the time constraint of, this has to fit within the song Edgar Wright chose before he wrote the script. And they, they drive away, taillights fading, as the song naturally fades out, and title card hits in. And then the rest of the movie follows suit. And, and I think, when it comes to opening scenes seeing one that so well tells you exactly how this movie's gonna go. I think very few movies have done as effective of a job as Baby Driver. Lucas Gerke, thank you so much for your time. Hey, thanks again. Happy to be on.
Special thanks to Lucas Norton for playing the harmonica part before the spotlight portion of this episode. Our theme music is by Kurt Remke. Our logo is by Daniel Church. Steven Stahovsky joins us as a writer, producer, and editor. Our podcast is hosted by John Dawkins and Wayne Shout Productions. Our social media coordinator is Ella Abbott. Thank you for having us. Everyone has a story. These are some of our favorites. And this has been Storytelling Breakdown. SP Wayne Shout Productions. Wayne Shout. <laughs>